tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 117, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, this podcast is for you if you've got any interest in what we like to call the golden age of video gaming. And that could be, you know, we've covered stuff from the earliest days of the academic networks, MUDs, text adventures, arcades, 8 and 16-bit consoles, up to like, you know, full motion video games on PC CD-ROMs. Oh, we've even covered the Xbox, you know, we had Ed Fry's on with... I think that's as far as we go, though, really, isn't it? The Xbox. Up to the year 2000. Yeah. The millennium bug wiped us out of that. That's it. it. <laughs> but this week, I think our guest ticks all the boxes. Oh, this guest is amazing. It's Peter Oliphant, and he's basically been a designer, programmer, producer, project lead, promoter, and an actor. He's got quite a varied CV then. Oh, definitely. Uh, Mattel Electronics, Interplay, Cinemaware, Sierra Online, even the Dick Van Dyke show. So. <laughs> He's been with some amazingly famous names in the world of games. Now, even thinking about games he was involved with, um, he was a programmer on Rocket Ranger, a joint creator of Stonekeep, and also there was like a futuristic quiz show called Lexicross that he yeah, was involved yeah, with as well. Yeah, kind of out at the same time as Smash TV, so uh, we'll hear more about that. So he's going to be really interesting. Hang around for this week's special guest. Peter Oliphant is going to be our guest on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. Now, we have got a lot of requests recently because our audience in America has been growing massively recently. It has, and we've got a new way that you can access us in America. So um, they haven't got it in the UK yet, or I don't know if they've got it in mainland Europe yet. Either. No, it's only the US and Canada. It's Google Play. So, <laughs> now, Due to some rather naughty VPN activity over the weekend, <laughs> I can reveal, because we have so many people asking for it, don't we, all the time? Yeah. And if you try and log on from the UK, get that message, uh, Google Play is not available yet in the UK. Is, the that, is that connected to the Google Home? So can you do like, you know, play the retro hour to your Google Home now? You can, literally. If you've got a, a Google Home or a Google Now, all you say is, okay, Google, play the retro hour. And you've just play. started it on everybody's <laughs> device. Those listening stats are going up. Yeah. Alexa, play the retro hour podcast. <laughs> you can do that as well. Yeah. <laughs> Siri, I don't think you can do that one. But it is just another way that you can listen because I think it is a bit poor that Google have like delayed the launch of the podcast service of Google Play for like I, I, two I don't years. know. Maybe they have, uh, they have rights with certain music that it can only be in America and you know they're probably negotiating big rights packages for the rest of the world. We get the music here, it's not the podcast service. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's weird. Yeah. yeah, two and a half years it's took them, still haven't launched it. But So if you are in America and you've got an Android phone, you can now listen on the uh, Google Play podcast service. So we're list. on everything but Spotify at the moment, pretty much. We'll get there eventually. eventually. I'm sure we will. So we say this all the time. Do you, do you know anyone at Spotify? Hug us up. You know, we'll, yeah, I'm sure yeah. we'll get on there. Send them some <laughs> treats. Now, we just want to say a big thank you as well to the people who allow us to keep doing the podcast every week because we do have a little tip jar 
on the front page of our uh, soon-to-be newly redesigned website. Oh, I've, I've been working on it. Dan has actually seen pages that have been designed and we're actually writing content, so it's going to be good. It is in the works, guys. And a flashy new logo. Oh, yeah. I don't yeah. too much, but the reason that we can get a new website and we can, you know, keep paying for the hosting of doing the show every week, uh, because doing a weekly podcast, it does have some quite big expenses behind it, but that is thanks to the people who make donations into the running of the show. And it means that Ravi and I don't have to pay for the entire thing out of our own pocket, which is always appreciated. And just for making a donation of any amount, you'll find your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Now, this week, we want to say thank you so much to Roy Gelotti. Colin Bell. Nigel Wilkinson. And Stephen O'Kane. Who all made donations into the running of the show. And you can do the same. We accept PayPal. That converts pretty much any currency, doesn't it? You know, it really helps because we're looking at going on Libsyn, which yeah. is an, another service. And that's another sign-up service. But... Um, if we look at going on there, you know, these donations really help us actually get onto more platforms and get out to more people. Well, that's one of our goals this year, really, isn't it? To make the show grow bigger and get it in front of more people as well. So we're trying to get on more services, but obviously with those is more subscription costs annual usually, aren't they? So any donations you make all go back into the running of the show and really, really makes a big difference. All you've got to do, either via PayPal or cryptocurrency, if you're into that, you can do it on the front page of our website, theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our special guest, Peter Oliphant, who will be coming up in the next few minutes, we've got a few news stories that I've been dead excited to talk about this one, actually. One of my all-time favourite games is finally getting a new sequel for the 21st century. And I was only playing this at the weekend, funnily enough. Seventh Guest. Well, interestingly, Peter worked with a lot of the team of Seven Guests at Cinemaware. Yeah. So, you know, they kind of went off and, and did this. And you remember Seventh Guest. It was the... Was it the first, or it was one Very of the early. first full motion video games, those PC CD-ROM games with probably the worst acting in the world <laughs> that you've ever seen? Well, a lot of the games back then, I mean, Seventh Guest was kind of different insofar as it did actually employ actual actors, I think. Yeah, not just the staff. <laughs> yeah, the ones before that, I mean, I remember like, do you remember the full motion video introduction to Cannon Fodder? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was that was the guys from the office, wasn't it? Dressed up with water pistols. Yeah, the developers from Sensi running around. Uh, but Seventh Guest, it was an epic. And even, you know, I didn't remember this until the other day. Seventh Guest came out in 1993. Wow. That's very that, early that for CD-ROM. That is really early, isn't it? And it came on two CD-ROMs. So it was that big, it actually I, came I think Mist was the only thing that came on two CD-ROMs as well. I remember two CD-ROMs. Who needs that? Back then, a CD-ROM... In 93, it could, what, 700 megabytes? Yeah. You come from floppy disks, essentially, <laughs> straight away. It was an epic game, and on playing it again recently, because I've got like an old Windows 98 PC, and I actually, I've got a CD-ROM drive in there. Do you remember on old CD-ROMs? Because I was putting games in it and I wasn't getting music. Do you mean you needed like a wire to get the sound card? Yeah, yeah, so you needed a mixer, didn't you? The, the CD audio wouldn't actually mix with your sound card. Like... Even I've I've done a few hacked CD mixers and you can just like solder resistors and then uh, pass the sound through there. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've forgotten. A lot of the games, I was like, why are they quiet? There must be something wrong here. Then I thought, ah, I remember now. Ah, so. CD audio, yes. <laughs> CDDA or something it's called. Isn't yeah, it? trying to find that device as well was a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got, um, I think I got one of eBay for about 99p. 
plugged it in my sound card that I've got in my old... I've got a creative sound card. Plays fine now. But when I was playing Seventh Guest again at the weekend, I'd forgotten how tricky a lot of the puzzles are in that game. Because you think of it as like quite a, you know, a cheesy kind of horror film, essentially. But it's got some really difficult logic puzzles in there. Well, it was, it was out for the um, PC and the CDI at the time, which was, you know, one of these CD consoles. But yeah, 93. That is absolutely insane. Well, the CDI was actually... From what I've heard, the superior version. I have got it, but I haven't really played it through much. But it was, you know, it was a massive game. And really, I think the reason it was so popular is because everyone was jumping on the CD-ROM revolution mm. and it was kind of the game to buy back then. It was like the killer app for it. But they are now doing a sequel called The 13th Doll. Oh, well, I, did we hear about a, a seventh guest sequel coming up before? There have been a couple of failed Kickstarters over ah, the last few years, okay. I believe. But this one, um, it's been funded on Kickstarter. This has actually done well, and it's going to be coming out in time for Halloween 2018. Now, it turns out um, there's actually a little trailer that I'll put in this week's show notes. It's on a website called uh, vintageisthenewworld.com, and it actually does retain a lot of the original kind of style of the first seventh guest. It's got that kind of you know, quite low-res overlaid full motion video over a like computer generated background so do you think it'll come out for the cdi (laughs) (laughs) downgrade it (laughs) i I don't think they're running a kickstarter for that one so that could be one of the bonuses though couldn't it uh but it does look really good and it's got a lot of the original actors in there as well and it kind of follows on from the original story um and they're intending really that it will remain faithful to the original game with you know a lot of those kind of quite difficult puzzles in there as well 26 of them apparently included in there so and it seems to be coming out for steam as well so that's really good you know you can just kind of download it and have they might have multiple format releases never know yeah that's the thing about these kind of releases is they are quite specialist i guess which is probably why the previous kickstarters have failed for seventh guest sequels but one thing i do love as well it's coming out in time for halloween there are not that many halloween games that come out no yeah that's a good point true this this Seventh guest was definitely scary, and that's what will be. So, yeah, usually me and my brother play like uh, we normally have a go at Call of Duty Zombies on Halloween night. That's about it. But yeah, there'll be something new I'll be playing this year. So, have a break from Call of Duty for a year. Yeah. Uh, speaking of stuff that you might want to buy, we've got to give this a massive big up. How impressed were we with those Amiga twelve hundred replacement cases a couple of years ago? It was like they were made from the factory. It was yeah. like they'd come from Commodore or Rescom. These were like amazing cases but the thing is they're all in funky colours yeah they've got these little pop out bits as well have you seen those Dan yeah so essentially you, if you've got like add-ons like USB and VGA which you know a lot of people who've got these old machines especially someone who go to the effort of buying a new case has probably got add-ons and upgrades and stuff in there as well yeah. and the worst thing was before if you had stuff like a GoTech these probably broke your heart as well. You look in the groups and people are like using hexaws to chop out bits oh, of the original cases. Massacring <laughs> cases. And those were the originals as well. So these replacements have these kind of little push-out bits that you can do. But they're, they're really solid, actually. You'd think that you'd look at the case at the top and you'd see kind of some light through it. But they are really solid. Well, new set of compatible cases are coming out for the Amiga 500 and the Amiga 500 Plus. Now, obviously, the Amiga 500 was the most popular model of the Amiga. And I think for many people, they're the most nostalgic machines. But even they've got some quite big upgrades in recent years. Like you can get a Vampire, like FPGA Accelerator for it now. You've got GoTex and people are fitting stuff like, you know, Apollo boards with USB and HDMI and SD adapters. And yeah, all it was even thing. hard to get IDE on the uh, 500 back in the days. Now, now it's madness. So a lot of people are back into the 500. But like we said, the problem is the old cases didn't have portholes and that mm. kind of thing. And yeah. a lot of them, I mean, we discussed this last week with... Um, you know, Neil from Retro Man Cave, 
a lot of Amiga 500s look grotty now. <laughs> they look yellow. Yeah, and... they really do, actually. I don't know if the plastic for the 1200s were different, but the 500s have a particular fag smoke kind of look, <laughs> don't they? <laughs> well, that's the thing. There are now new cases. So if you've got a disgusting-looking Amiga 500 at home and you want to give it a kind of a new lease of life and make it look beautiful and have some new additions on there as well, there are some new cases that have just gone on Indiegogo. Now, this campaign is running at the moment. It's from the same team that actually did bring you the Amiga 1200 cases. Well, the best thing I found about the 1200 cases were that they actually had custom editions of it. So I got myself the Alistair Brimble one. I backed that and, oh, my God, I love Alistair Brimble. And this is like a dark blue key set and everything. It's lovely. Um, This one has Scourge of the Underkind. Now, Scourge of the Underkind is a brand new game coming for the Amiga. This has been happening recently. New games have been coming out. What's going on? And this is like one that's boxed and a commercial quality game. Oh, a commercial quality game. This is, uh, you know, it it, kind of looks really like um, Speedball mixed with Chaos Engine, but then also like gods as well (laughs) it's it's really got that old school look and it's designed even for like one meg ocs games now the reason we're talking about that in relation to the cases is one of the perks is actually a scourge of the underkind pack oh yeah this is an amazing pack you know it comes with a collector's edition of the game and it just comes with loads of stuff you've got a soundtrack you've got your mug you've got your manual and you know you also have all your compatible case parts so i'm thinking you know if the vampire standalone or any of these new machines come out they're all going to be compatible with this uh, amiga 500 and 500 plus case are they designed to fit in there as well are they yeah yeah but i saw on the 1200 that they built a custom little adapter yeah. that goes in but um it says you know rubber feet uh, for Apollo Vampire features. Well, that's awesome. I mean, the fact that they've kind of bundled it with a new game as well, it kind of reminds me of like, the Batman pack and cartoon classics oh, having yeah. like, an Amiga pack. Yeah, an Amiga pack. And the cool thing is, you know, you get the mug, the poster, everything. It's like getting your old school Amiga collector's edition. And one thing I do love as well is they've got new screw threads, which for me was always a big problem with the A500. Oh, yeah, God, those plastic ones were awful, weren't they? This is metal, so they don't strip. Yeah, before I'd put them through and come out the other side of the case if you got a screw that was too long. So, I mean, essentially, if you want to give your A500 a new lease of life and uh, these are really worth supporting and we can vouch for the quality I mean they're not 3D printed or anything these are proper injection factory moulded and if you've got your 500 that you've had since a kid you know it's nice to give it a new set of clothes isn't it yeah because I mean these cases look virtually identical to the originals with some new additions as well you have to hack apart your old one so it is running on Indiegogo at the moment Um, it's got 269 backers at time recording this but they're only 34% of the way there so they do need some extra backers and there's only a few weeks left so if you want to get involved and you know get yourself some new cases for the Amiga 500 because otherwise there'll be no more ever made (laughs) it's like you know you need to get these while you can we'll put a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com and hopefully we'll get a couple for a review on our YouTube channel soon as well fingers crossed let's go all the way back in the day wouldn't you like to visit Tokyo in the 1980s oh god yeah I'd like to visit today (laughs) but in the 80s it must have been a very exciting time you just think about, like, you know, the machines I had over there. The MSX, for example, was massive, wasn't it? Well, even just the stereo systems are like, you know, the Walkman and oh, all the CD systems they had and everything. Tokyo's always been ahead, hasn't it? Absolutely. And even stuff like online shopping and email and all that. You know, you go back to, like, 1984, it was actually more prevalent in Japan than it is over here. Now, there's a really interesting video that you found. Um, it's actually... Thames Television, who I'd not really heard of this show. There was obviously Micro Live on the BBC, mm. but apparently on ITV they had a show called Database, 
that was all about the computer industry and emerging technologies. And they went over to Tokyo to do a little report on the technology over there. Now, in typical early 80s style, they've got a really stiff presenter in, like, oh, in, a, yeah. in a suit. Micros. Yeah, talking about micros. Let's have a little listen to a clip where he's on a market store. At this particular arcade, street market, call it what you will, is that apart from being an Aladdin's cave for the amateur radio enthusiast, it's a treasure trove for the chap who wants to build his own computer. Because here you can buy absolutely everything, from a chip to a motherboard. Let me put it to the test. Do you have the Z80A central processing unit chip? That one there. Yeah, just the one. How much is that? 680 yen. There's a thousand. Thank you very much. Now, there oh, he, he tipped as well. What a flash guy. <laughs> but this is awesome. I mean, even looking at a market store where you can just buy, there's all these bags full of chips. <laughs> well, I, I've been watching this channel. Um, I know it's not in Japan, it's in China, but yeah. it's uh, called Strange Parts. And they're basically taking apart iPhones at the moment. And the whole thing is exactly the same as this. People have parted it out. They go, where's this chip? You know, and I think that's the kind of Asian model parting out computers and then selling all the individual bits so you can make some custom badass machine. <laughs> well, even in this, I mean, they're looking at there's kind of a, an Apple II knockoff, or they call it a pirate computer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, pirate, pirate computers. I think it's really interesting to see the other side of it as well because, I mean, we, we posted a video on our YouTube channel the other day, um, what well, our Facebook actually it was, of Micro Live, and I just love looking at these old computer shows because there's kind of an innocence about them in a way because it was so new and no one knew what they were talking yeah, about. Yeah, no one knew. I, I remember seeing this whole section where this guy's like, well, I'm going to cover video games, but they're utterly boring, so I won't. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, the attitude at the time, it was quite uh, quite snobby as well on some of those shows. A lot of people thought it wasn't going to last more than a year or two, did they, the yeah. whole industry? But we put one on our Facebook. It was um, Micro Live showing uh, music synthesizers back in, I think it was about 1986, and there's a spec drum on there. Oh, yeah, but the cool thing about that is as well, because you have all these straight suits there, but then they get the music guy in, and he's like a dude with long hair, like, you know, just going flowing backwards. And The guy in that video had the world's best mullet. Yeah, it was massive. <laughs> and he's doing, like, this proper kind of cheesy mid-80s electro-pop and stuff. I looked at it, though, and straight after I went on, e I went on eBay, tried to find a Spectrum. <laughs> Fortunately, there wasn't any listed, but it had quite a banging little snare drum bass line. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was um, what Bjorn Lin used originally on the uh, Spectrum. So, I mean, any of these that come up, these kind of classic computer documentaries, I always find them fascinating. So if you want to watch that, um, it's hosted by Tony Bastable, that was his name, when he travelled to Japan circa 1984 to check out the country's booming PC scene. We'll put that video in the show notes at theretrohour.com. They need to upload more episodes of those, though, because it's the kind of things that, you know, they must all be in the archives. Well, but... you know what? I've, I've been looking for Tomorrow's World online, and there's just none of it. No one. I thought there'd be some nerd there sitting with his VHS recording of the Tomorrow's World, but no. There are a couple of clips, and occasionally, you know, if the BBC have, like, anniversaries, they'll pull out maybe a five-minute clip and put it on yeah, online. Yeah. And I, funnily enough, I was watching a clip of Tomorrow's World a couple of weeks ago, and... It, you know when you, you must fall down the YouTube rabbit hole? Oh, always. Uh, everything. <laughs> yeah. You're watching a video. Oh, that looks interesting. Recommended there. For some reason, I don't know how I got onto it. I got looking at the launch of CDs. Oh, yeah. And there was a clip of Tomorrow's World. It wasn't the famous one where they were eating off you know, the baked beans off the disc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was indestructible. But it was a report about, you know, the history of kind of gramophones to wax cylinders and 
wanted the CD that was kind of like, nothing's ever going to get better than this. Oh, to get in that BBC archive, mate, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? But you just wish that one day, like you said, they'd open it up and yeah. like put it all online, so yeah. that would be really cool. They don't Come know on. what they got. Come on, BBC, get your finger out. Now, before we chat to this week's special guest, Peter Oliphant, let's talk a bit about a mini centipede cabinet. Well, it's 12 inches tall, so I don't know if it's that mini, but um, this is a, a centipede cabinet, and it's a wooden faithful recreation, and it's got the original centipede game and ROMs in it, but it's around £129. Well, for something that you can sit on, like, your coffee table or something, it does look like, I mean, looking at it, it's got, like, the original arcade marquee artwork and stuff on it. And Well, I'll tell you what, every time I go to any play event, there's this... Any any event, really, there's always a centipede machine in the yeah. corner and it always has a sign on it saying, uh, just taking a break to cool down. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing, because centipede is a really hard machine. And this is officially licensed by Atari. You know, it's uh, got micro USB cable on it. And, uh, oh, you power it over micro USB? Yeah. That's pretty cool. And it's made out of wood and metal as well, so it's not some cheap little plastic thing. Yeah, and it's a high-performance... Uh, lag-free gameplay, apparently. Which, you know, you, you talk about that, the amount of systems that have been re-released recently and people are talking about lag, that's like a major thing, isn't it? Yeah, Especially definitely. if you know about the original games. And I first probably came across a system that had really bad lag about 10 years ago. Do you remember those Competition Pro USB joysticks that got released? Yeah, yeah. I got one of those and I was playing games and I was awful at them all. I didn't realise why, but it was just a half a second lag while the USB chip inside did the decoding of the signals. So if you get something like this in one of these cabinets and you're used to the way the original plays, that is really important because it will throw your gameplay off. Definitely, and also it has a lithium-ion rechargeable battery inside, which is quite cool. So you can play it on the train. Yeah. <laughs> if you do do that, of course, do send us a video. And that is on F1 Stock Retro's website as well. They're a great website just for like novelty kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, they've got, they've got all kinds of little devices and, uh, you know, clone stuff, and oh, it's great. So thank you very much for checking out the news section of this week's show, guys. If you have got any stories as well you'd like us to cover, uh, please do drop us an email, show at theretrohour.com. Yeah, send us any letters, any comments, anything, really. You can get us on Twitter, at RetroHourUK, Instagram, we're on Facebook as well, and as we said, we're trying to get on as many podcast services as possible. We're now on the Google Play Store in the podcast section. Some people do occasionally contact us and say, I listen on this podcast service here. Any chance you guys can get on? Yeah, yeah. There may be a way of uh, submitting, you know, like Stitcher wasn't automatic. We had to submit for that and stuff. So. Yeah, and we've only got four eyes. Yeah. Not no each. <laughs> That's it, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, if you do spot any of those, do let us know, guys. We'd much appreciate it. We'll try and get it on the more. Right then, time to tour. Classics like Stonekeep, Lexicross, Mattel Electronics, The Dick Van Dyke Show. This week's special guest is Peter Oliphant. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for the highlight of the show, the bit that we look forward to where we welcome on our special guest and my word, have we got a legend this week. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, Peter Oliphant. Hello there, how are you? Very good, thank you. Now, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us this week. We can't wait to get some stories about classics like Sierra Online and Cinemaware and Interplay, all those legendary companies. But first of all, we thought we might be, you know, quite interested to go back to day number one, all the way back to the start. Do you remember your earliest computer experience where it all started for you? I mean, if you want to go way back, my very first non-professional computer gaming stuff was in actually uh, high school, where I, where at that time, because I'm quite old, by the way, I'm in my 60s, uh, computers weren't even around inside the school. And so what I did 
uh, they had a computer system that you could actually use there. It was a teletype that called to a computer at the uh, at the what was the city level because we didn't have computers of our own. And so what I did is I learned how to program basic on that and did things like roulette games and that kind of stuff. And that gave me the bug to do games in general, but it wouldn't be for many years before I actually worked at Mattel, which would be my first professional gig. Oh, because you had a whole acting career before then, didn't you? You were propelled well, into that too. child star, you know? <laughs> you want to hear a little bit about that, just a really quick version of that is that uh, when I was five years old, my uh, my entire family who had the Hollywood bug and moved out to Hollywood there came from all sorts of places like Iowa and that kind of stuff. And they came out here and they formed a Saturday morning uh, kids show called uh, Air Patrol. And it was live. And so uh, I went to the, what they did is they had kids on the show and these kids are on the show and they were like guests and they're only there for one day. And, for, and it was only one day a week, by the way, it was on Saturday and they would win prizes and stuff. Well, I was on like the second episode of that and I'm only like six years old and I'm thinking, well, uh, you know, here's all my relatives around because it was things like my uncles are on the show and my parents are on the show because that's how they constructed it. And what happens is my uncle is a clown. This is around Christmas time. Uh, had made a Christmas tree, and he said it was out of paper, and he'd drawn He says, well, if I had time, I'd cut it out. And I tapped him on the shoulder. Now, keep in mind, this is a live television show. I tap him on the shoulder, and I say, I've got time. Let me cut it out. So he gives it to me, and I cut it out while he goes on with the show. And so at that point, I, when I was done, I handed it to him, and they showed the stuff. And the director loved it, and he made me a regular of the show, so I was on every week. Now, this is a live show. Now, keep in mind, from my point of view, I thought I was already on the show. I'm going, well, that's just what our family does. <laughs> and once you've got your foot in the door, uh, at that point, it's pretty easy to get other interviews, especially at that age, because it's very tough to find people that are six that can act. And at one, at that led to various things. I have like 20 credits. I was a, I have a regular character on the Dick Van Dyke show called Freddie Helper. I've done movies with uh, Jimmy Stewart, and so on and so on. But I got when I got to college age. I decided I'd rather get into academics because I was more interested in math and stuff, and especially computers came in at that point. And so I uh, gave up the concept of program. I mean, of uh, doing uh, acting work and went into academics instead. And that led to computer games, and that's it. <laughs> that's sort of the preview of my. Uh, that's sort of like a really uh, condensed version of how my acting career. Well, you had a passion for maths as well, and did that kind of lead to you taking up programming really easily? Not necessarily easily, but yes, it led to it. Made, it seemed like a natural uh, extension of my liking math because uh, what, a, what a computer does is it lets you take your math ideas and actually construct them in a laboratory and actually see them more dynamic than it is just to work on in terms of proofs and stuff. So yes, uh, it's a way of expressing math programming, and then games to me is a way of expressing uh, systems, which is kind of a math thing, too. So, yes, uh, it was a way of uh, expressing math in a more concrete way, in a fun way, too. Well, did you have any experience before you joined Mattel with, like, text adventures or any of the early types of video games? No, except for maybe things like Pac-Man and stuff like that was that was in arcades. But, no, I, I actually, this is like the beginning of this kind of stuff. I remember that the uh, the what was it the uh, Atari VCR had come out uh, v, uh, VCS had come out and I was playing that and I just want since I had done games sort of 
uh, in uh, high school and stuff. It seemed like a natural thing. So what happened with Mattel is I was working as a defense contractor, programming, you know, defense contract type stuff at Bunker Ramo. And I uh, just decided that I would call Mattel or like write Mattel out of the blue. This was just me out of the blue. I'd write Mattel and ask them if they wanted to do stuff like games. Now, I had no idea but that week, at the very same time, Mattel had put an ad in the paper asking for the exact same thing. Uh, so it was kind of a cool coincidence. Now, I then went back east for about a few weeks, came back and uh, got telephone calls and stuff, and they said they want to interview me. And so uh, I went in there, but I had no idea. when I, And w when I talked to them, they said, you know, did you know that when you wrote this letter that we actually put something in the paper? So, uh, so I went from defense contracts. It was where I first did programming, meaning... Uh, the very first time I ever did actual professional programming was for battleships <laughs> uh, in uh, in the Navy through defense contracts, and I had security clearances and everything. In fact, at one point, I had a top-secret clearance that would have allowed me to work at CIA headquarters, but that is exactly at that point that I went to Mattel, so we'll never know how that would have worked out. <laughs> well, what were the um, earliest things you were working on for Mattel when you first got there? What did they have you working on? Okay, well, it turns out that they were using a CPU called the 6502, which I had never seen before, uh, so I had to learn a 6502. Now, they gave me this task, my boss, Richard Chang, that they were doing this game called Gravity, which is a handheld game, and they had uh, like about two games already programmed or uh, like designed for it, which was one was a coin drop game. Now, way back when, I don't know if they still got these. But there was a uh, there was a thing, a physical thing they put like in bowling alleys where you put a nickel in it, and when you hit the button, it started to drop the nickel, and it seems like a ridiculous concept. And if you hit the button quick enough, you win and you get your nickel back. Uh, so it sort of like seems like an effort in futility, but people would brag about being able to do that. So that was one game. Uh, another game was uh, juggling, where what you would do is there was a line on the screen, and the balls that were on the screen, which were actually constructed just of dots, this whole screen was three dots by seven dots, would go up and down. Now, if you use the uh, like formulas of gravity, which is like A squared, 2 over 2, plus VT, plus S, never mind all that. But in any case, if you use those formulas, you can actually make the dots look like they're very much like balls behaving like gravity. So what we did is you would launch the balls by virtue of pressing a button at the bottom. Now, when they came back down, you couldn't press it again until they dropped below the line, in which case at that point they could go back up. So you, and there was three such rows of this, so you were actually juggling, juggling the balls. Now, those are the two games they had. So the uh, task they gave me was they wanted an, a third game. So they said, quite literally, we want you to come up with five new games uh, for this that we're going to pick one to be part of this uh, in a production way. And by the way, you have six weeks. Now, keep in mind in that six weeks, what I had to do was learn how to program the 6502, come up with five brand new games, and program each and every one of them so they worked, plus the two that they had already you know, decided upon. And I did that, and they were very impressed, and that started my meteoric, if you will, rise at uh, Mattel, which was every six months they would give me a raise, uh, and when they gave you a raise, they would also have to, if they brought you in a certain bracket, give you a promotion. But if they gave you a promotion, they were obligated to give you another review in six months. So I kept getting raises and promotions every six months. So I started off being a programmer trainee at Mattel. By the way, employee number 20, uh, Mattel Electronics, I should say, which is a separate uh, section of that. Uh, within three and a half years, I went from programming trainee to manager of the home computer section. So... 
So at the time, did you kind of feel like you were on the cusp of something that was set to like change the world and be huge? Or did it kind of feel like it might be a fad that would only be around for a couple of years? Well, I kind of figured that computer games would stay forever in some way or form because it's just too like uh, good of a new form. I mean, we have movies and we have uh, music and music uh, first started off just being sound. Then movies uh, had sound, but they also included uh shall we say, visuals, whereas now computer games now adds another layer to that, which is interactivity. So that was going to last forever. However, it did go through sort of a uh, fad phase because uh, at first there was a meteoric rise of the computer game industry, but then it crashed, but then came back the way we have it today. So to answer your question in a certain way, I could sense it was going to last forever, but I could see there'd be problems in the beginning. So what was the culture like at Mattel? Was it quite corporate or quite free and radical? It was, uh, well, we had a very separate area because we were called design and development, which most companies called research and development because we were doing the handhelds and we were also doing later on the Intellivision stuff, although I never actually worked directly on Intellivision. I did have some stuff to do with the design. But the, it was, yes, Mattel in general was very corporate, uh, they had a very strong structure of how you could put something out. It would take two years minimum from start to finish for any product. It had to go through massive numbers of approvals, uh, like like every few months they would have like meetings for every single project, at which point it could be canceled. So it wasn't like you're sitting at home working on a project. At any moment, your project could be canceled. But we were considered very special because we were the – uh, up-and-coming aspect of it. They did recognize the computer games and computer stuff, especially handhelds, because keep in mind, they're a toy company, so the handheld, which is the biggest thing back then, is uh, you know uh, like a cross between the two. It's a computer game, but it's also a toy, in effect. So they love that kind of stuff. Uh, so they gave us special like privileges. We could go anywhere in the building but absolutely nobody else besides people in our group could come into our area. We had, everyone had badges at Mattel, and we go through a security check to go in there. But our badges in D&D uh, had red dots on them, and that meant that we were, we were able to go anywhere. We could go to uh, the top-secret area where they were making computer games, but the people, I mean, were making toys, but the people making toys couldn't come to us. So uh, I guess that would qualify as being pretty corporate. <laughs> Access all areas, pass. Oh, yes. We could go anywhere, absolutely anywhere, but absolutely nobody else could come to us. So there was a little bit of animosity on the part of other people in the, co- in the uh, company about that. But then again, we didn't really deal with them that much. We kind of dealt with ourselves. When I got there, I was the 20th employer, so the employee, so there was only 20 of us there. But by the time it was all done, there was like 100 of us. So we had our own culture within Mattel. Uh, and in television, actually had a different culture than the handhelds. And I was in the handhelds pretty much till the end of my being, a, you know, being an employee there. But uh, yeah, yeah, uh, we. Uh, it wasn't like the culture today. I mean, we were uh, the culture then was more programming and and engineering than it was, uh, shall we say, cosplay. Well, you did mention the Intellivision. Let's talk a bit about that, because, I mean, where did the idea of Mattel actually making their own kind of home console come from? Do you remember that kind of early planning of the Intellivision? Now, I got there after they had already uh, conceived of Intellivision, but it was only on the design stage. So I don't know what their thoughts are or what their thinking was that actually went into uh, causing that to be a go project. But I do know 
that uh, they wanted to get on, on the fact that, uh, you know, things like Apple was doing really good at the time. Uh, the IBM PC had come out and it was doing really good. So they wanted to get in on that market. But the problem was, and I remember seeing up on the uh, board, because we had a board with stuff like information about what was going on in the company. We, I mean, we don't have, we didn't have things like computers. Remember that. Keep this in mind. We don't have like computers on our desks back there. I mean, we do, but we don't have them hooked into the Internet where we're talking to each other. The computers are there entirely for uh, doing things like design work. So we see things up on the board. But the price of making in television, they wanted it to be like a $100 item out the door. And we could see the development of it on the board, how constantly they kept adding things. They got to the point where they realized that every television they made, they'd be losing money. So they actually did that. So that's the reason if you kind of notice back there in television, it wasn't a really big push. Uh, they were kind of hoping to make the money up on the back end with respect to uh, you know, software, because like anything else, it's a razor blade industry. If you can sell software for it, that's where the money is. Uh, but uh, yeah, as it turns out, the, uh, they were a little worried about the Intellivision because the hardware itself cost them money to sell by the price they're going to have to sell it for. And keep in mind, this is a company based entirely on selling hardware. So it was a very big step in their mental process to be able to think about selling something that they would lose money on the hardware, but make hopefully more money on the back end with software and games. Well, internally, when you were like developing stuff, were people sharing references, manuals, technical information, or did they all keep it really kind of close to themselves? Well, we were inventing the manuals back then. There wasn't anybody to share with, really. I mean, I guess, uh, I think Atari was around at the time. But no, Atari and Mattel definitely did not talk to each other. In fact, when I left Mattel, what happened is, is like I said, I was made the, uh, uh, the manager of the home computer software area. So what I did is I hired a bunch of people to work on games, and I brought them in, and I said, okay, come up with a game and design it yourself and uh, start working on it. Now, I also did the same thing. So at one point when I was on vacation, I designed a game for what was then uh, the Atari 400 and 800 uh, system because that had just emerged at that particular time. And when I came, uh, when I uh, was off of my vacation and came back to work, I showed them the game and they told me, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. And I go, why can't you do that? And they go, well, because it's an Atari game and we can't possibly do a game which would support their hardware. And I tried to convince them that, you know, we can make money off of their hardware without having to lose money on their hardware, but they hadn't quite got that mindset yet. So no, sharing stuff, uh, we totally were self-contained. There was no way that any other com companies or anybody else outside of Mattel Electronics was selling information or uh, sharing information with anybody with Mattel Electronics. So yeah, totally closed. Were you surprised by the video game crash? Uh, yes, because for one thing, I was so counting on, remember, I just come from Hollywood, so I was counting on, you know, okay, I substituted one Hollywood for another. We're all going to become famous and rich and stuff like that. And it looked like it might go that way. But what happened uh, is that the game industry started getting too, uh, shall we say, uh, enamored with itself. It thought it could do anything and it could actually sell it. So there was, uh, I think it was uh, Atari again. They came out with two games. One was E.T. and the other one 
was Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, both games were horrible. All you did, like, for example, E.T., I forget, what was it, uh, Reese's Pieces or something like that in the movie, that uh, E.T. used to go around and and eat. So the game was entirely just a field where E.T. was walking around collecting those. He eats them, and it's done. I forget how they made that the same game with Indiana Jones. Maybe he was collecting artifacts. But the two games were absolutely identical except for graphics, or basically identical except for graphics graphics and just using different licenses and you know people were paying like $35 a game back there now if it turns out the games were good they would be more than willing to pay another $35 but as soon as they hit a game like that which was very you know popular a lot of people bought it and got burned from it uh they decided to be a little bit more cautious with their spending and that's basically what caused the crash because we were expecting things to keep rising and then people got cautious in their spending and boom it only crashed for a few years but for people like me uh you know what do we do next you'd say oh yeah go on and do programming well people in other industries thought that people that programmed games were kids you know we were just you know toy programmers or or kid programmers, we didn't know what we were doing, even though anybody to do, who could do game programming had all of the skills. I mean, we had to deal with uh, interactivity, with graphics, with sound. But, uh, yeah, uh, to answer your main question, it was a big shock at the time, especially to my lifestyle. <laughs> well, what do you think caused the uh, fall of Metal Electronics? Too fast of expansion. Like a, a, what, for me, when I was there and they decided to expand Mattel Electronics because of uh, what they thought the industry was going to do, literally, almost literally, maybe not quite this, everybody at Mattel at that point, electronics, like I said, there was only like a, like a few dozen, maybe 36 of us at that point. We were all made basically managers, and each one of us had to hire seven people to work under us. So when you expand a company by a factor of eight or seven uh, in one year, and then the market flattens out, well, that's a recipe for disaster, and that's what caused Mattel Electronics to crash. You know, the whole thing about Mattel being originally in the toy game and then video games, uh, did the two kind of go hand in hand? Because I know when Nintendo kind of came along, they brought Rob the Robot out, and that was a way for them to get into toy stores. I mean, were they always kind of viewed as toys back then? In a sense, because, again, there was the hardware aspect of it because we were actually making handhelds and like that. But, you know, ironically, it's almost like I'm only just thinking of this now, and I don't know why I didn't think of it before. Nobody was pushing us to do, like, a Barbie game or a Hot Wheels game or anything like that. So they must have really considered it to be very separate to not want to put automatically guaranteed selling licenses on these. Most of the time they would ask us, believe it or not, to do sports games. They always want us to do football and baseball and basketball. So I don't, in fact, when I got there, the first thing they were working on was, uh, you know, baseball. So uh, I don't know why, but yeah, you would think that they would have uh, connected the two industries more, but they really kept us separate. Well, when you were just finishing working at Mattel, um, they, you you were developing a game and uh, they didn't seem very interested in it. So um, what what kind of happened there? Because you uh, ended up sending it to Sierra, right? Uh, actually, yes. Wow, you know your history on that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what happened is that yes, uh, I continued to work on that game, which was called uh, Force Field at the time, and ended up being called Wall War, which Sierra Online did publish. Uh, I was told by 
the people at Mattel that they do not do these games. These games are not in competition with them in the sense that they don't do these games. And so uh, I worked on it my, in my spare time. At one point, I, I got sort of fed up with the bureaucracy at Mattel, the way we had to go through multiple checkpoints and stuff like that. Plus, at one point, it was kind of sad. I'll tell you a story. They, uh, I was in seven groups. There were seven groups, and my group, the one that was doing home computer software, what I did is, like I said, I told them to come up with an idea of their own and to program it. And within one month, it was amazing. They all had these amazing graphics going on on the screen. So my boss uh, called me in. He's the head of all seven of these groups. And I figure he's calling me in to tell me, oh, well, you know, you're doing a great job, which he did. He said, you guys are doing a great job. The problem is I have six other groups, and these six other groups aren't doing as well, and you're making them look bad, so could you slow down your group so it isn't doing as well? In fact, you know that one guy that's got really kind of serious psychological problems? What we want you to do is get in his face and make him feel really bad about himself so he slows down because he's going way too fast. Wow. Uh, that discouraged me quite a bit from how this whole uh, process works. So I started looking for other things, and I looked at Sierra Online uh, as a place. Now, that game that I told you about called Wall War, or at that point, Force Field, I went up to them for a day, and I showed it to them, and I made it, at this point, these were big numbers money-wise, but it may not sound like that today. I said, if they give me as much as a $5,000 advance for this game, I will leave Mattel and go there. Uh, and so I showed them the game. They gave me a $16,000 advance, so obviously it was a no-brainer. So I go back to Mattel and tell them that I'm leaving, and they said, fine, okay, what about that game that you were working on? And I go, what do you mean? You told me you don't do that. That's not a game that we do here. And they go, oh, no, but we still want it. And I said, no, you can't have it. I mean, that's not how this works. So uh, at my going-away party, they subpoenaed me. <laughs> in front of all of my friends and stuff. And uh, I got a lawyer, and the lawyer said, yeah, you're right. What they said was wrong. You can't do that. And we never went to court on it, but some of the weird stuff that happened there was that they used to have meetings. After I left there, they get together with Mattel, and they uh, got them together and said, okay, we, you know what the whole situation with Peter? Well, we want to tell you this. If you... Uh, the way we, our mindset is, is if you're a janitor that works here and you design or you write a cookbook in your spare time, we own that cookbook because you work at Mattel. And that may have also had something to do with their demise. This is in the year in which they definitely crash. But, you know, the happy story is I took the game to Sierra Online. I had a really good relationship with them, with them and did a whole bunch of games with them. Also pretty much as an independent and also as a uh, employee at Sierra. But the only reason I was ever an employee at Sierra is because it was a better way to deal with the financing at one point. But, yes, uh, Wall War got published. Didn't do that good, but it did start my, uh, shall we say, independent lone wolf career. What a lovely leaving present, though, from Mattel, eh? A subpoena. <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was kind of cruel. I mean, especially they made it a point to do it in front of my friends, too. I mean, I was at a pizza parlor, and I remember the guy was pretty nice, though. He walked up to me, and he says, excuse me, are you Peter Oliphant? And I go, yeah, and he goes, uh, here you go, this is a subpoena. And then, he, you know, he was quiet about it, but it was still, it was mean-spirited, and, and that was intentional. 
We don't hear much about Sierra online, and coming from Mattel, it must have been a, a total change in culture. Oh, big time, because for one thing, they had large amounts of independence. There is about one of the first times I felt sort of like a rock star, if you will, because uh, they treated us really well. They, uh, we'd go to conventions, plus being so independent. I mean, the difference between a corporate environment and one in which you have total freedom to do, you just work on games, you present it to them, and then they give you suggestions. Once you get it to the way they like it, you, they then buy it from you. They give you royalties, although royalties never added up to much. But yes, I think the biggest difference was the freedom of expression and freedom of time. Well, uh, Warren Davies made a great game, Cuba, and uh, you must have been a big fan of that one. Wow. Again, yes. <laughs> you know your stuff. I don't know how many people know that I was an expert at Cubert, meaning that is the only arcade game on the planet that I am capable, at least at the time, I was capable to go to an arcade, start playing it, and get to a point where like an hour and a half later I'd have like his maximum number of lives up there and would just have to leave. And the reason this is important, and it's probably the reason you asked me, is that was my inspiration for Mr. Cool which was a game I did for Sierra Online. It only took me three weeks. What it was is I, like I said, I was really good at Qbert, but there were aspects of the game I didn't like. I didn't like the fact that they repeated certain levels four times before they moved on to a variation, and their variations were very minor. I threw in different rules. I made it so that every single level would be different that you played through it, and instead of, you, of course, you couldn't use Qbert, so I had... Uh, the concept was that they were hot plates that you were jumping on and you were an ice cube and you didn't want to jump on the plates when they were hot, so that kind of stuff. And I, th that went from my concept of it to actually a finished product in three weeks. Uh, and that's, I think, one of my favorite games because that I ever did because uh, other people actually did versions of my game. It was the first time anybody ever did a conversion of one of my games. And uh, the magazines at the time really gave it good reviews, and it was on the cover of one of the magazines. Or, uh, to be fair, my character was on the cover of one of the magazines along with a bunch of other characters from other games. But yes, uh, I was an expert at Qbert, and that led me to creating a game that I really loved creating. Well, later you moved on uh, to Cinemaware as a producer, and that must have been a, an absolute huge leap with the uh, kind of changing graphics and sound and everything, storyline. Well, their games were like movies, weren't they, originally, like Cinemaware games? Cinemaware, actually, that was their concept. They wanted, they wanted to make games that gave you the experience of a movie. So it was one of the first times that... Uh, the other thing about Cinemaware games that most people don't know is that everyone has built into it sort of a board game. So what they wanted to do is cross the concept of a board game type mechanics with movie and cinema-like uh, uh, type uh, visuals, which is why they were called Cinemaware. Uh, and at first I went there, like you said, as a producer, uh, or actually as an associate producer, and I did a few games there, but it turns out my forte was more, again, programming. So I was doing this one game called King of Chicago. I was producing a game called King of Chicago, and inside of it they needed three or four arcade games. And so instead of trying to find somebody else, and since, oddly enough, as a producer, you have sort of more time than you do as a programmer, I was able to program those. I sort of hired myself, didn't pay myself any extra money, but <laughs> I hired myself to do those uh, arcade games, and they preferred my programming stuff, so I ended up being more of a programmer. So I segued in there from being a producer to a programmer, which in a sense, in hindsight, I think I should have gotten more production 
our producer experience because nowadays I prefer to be designing than programming. But uh, yeah, uh, that's how that went. So after that, you went from producer to programmer, uh, handling the PC side of things. I mean, obviously around that time, we had stuff like uh, EGA and CGA and VGA later came along. I mean, was it quite a challenge converting games to all of those kind of high resolution graphics modes? Uh, yeah, uh, for one thing, because those were actually had to be uh, handled as very separate like programs. Every single one of those was a separate program. I believe the way it worked with CGA was four colors, or five colors if you counted black. Uh, so let's see, uh, EGA was 16 colors, and VGA was 256 colors. Uh, so we needed to actually have separate graphics for each one, and that actually worked at the time because each one had to be a separate program. But... Uh, there was a game I worked on called Rocket Ranger, and what happened in that case uh, was that somebody was doing, his name was Peter Kaminsky, was doing uh, one version of it, I believe it was the Amiga, and so we needed to have a PC version of it, and we also needed to have a Commodore version of it and stuff like that, so I was made the person in charge of the PC version. Uh, what, but Bob Jacob, who was the head of the company that said, uh, at that point, made the directive that since the Amiga version was being done on a script basis, what we should do is just duplicate uh, the script system in each one of our uh, programs and then just run the scripts. But I mentioned to him that adds too much of a layer and that would slow down the computer too much. We really need to rewrite these from scratch. Now, at that point, Bob didn't like me because I was saying that, but he was smart enough to let me go my way and let everybody else go their way. Now, everybody else, like the commoner version and stuff like that, when they were done and tried to do it using the scripting system, it worked, but they'd get like one frame a second, whereas I showed them my version and I was getting like 60 frames a second. So he said, yeah, you should probably do it your way, and they had to go back and do it my way, the other thing. So at that point, I was a really, you know, they loved me at Cinemaware. They gave me my own office, which was actually a big thing back then because people were like in cubicles and stuff. And I was made of that section. I was in charge of the guy doing the EGA version, the CGA version, the VGA version. And uh, in reality, that was probably one of my more successful ones. Uh, back then, we didn't have design documents. The guy that was working on the Amiga, what we had to use is when he was done with something, we saw what he did, and then we just copied it. Nobody was writing it down. So... I was copying his version, but got to a point where I was always able to finish his version before he went on to the next one. So I invented a brand new game that went into my versions. And uh, so my version actually has one more game than his. Uh, but that's actually a complete change the way they do today. Today, you've definitely got to get approval. You've got to have a design and stuff like that. Back then, it was fly-by-pants programming. So. Did it kind of mean that you had to wait around for, the, for that Amiga guy to finish his project first then before you could get to work? Oh, yeah. Yes. I mean, he, of course, he doesn't have to finish the whole program. He could say, okay, this is a portion of the program that I've done, and then we could copy that program. So it wasn't like he did the whole thing and then we copied the whole thing. But, yeah, uh, it would be like, okay, come on, when's your next part? And that's what I mean. When there was an open space at one point, I just said, well, hell, I'll just – create another game and put it in there. A simple and quick one, but it got into the final version, so that was kind of cool. Well, was but that, yeah, we had to wait for them all the time. <laughs> was there like a divide between the Amiga developers and PC and Coleco? Oh, no, not back then. No, in that sense, it was very community. First of all, we were sitting right next to each other, so we shared... At, uh, internally, we shared a lot of information and stuff, and yeah, we liked each other a lot back then. Nobody was... Uh, uh, although... 
I think there was uh, it, there, in other companies there were people I think that worked on Doom or whatever it was called back then. And I heard a story, whether it's true or not, that one guy got so rich at one point or got so much money he bought a Lamborghini. And so a friend of his bought a Lamborghini that was also rich. So he bought a second one, which is really stupid because these were kids that didn't even have homes and they were living with their parents. So, uh, but that was other com- those those are other companies. Uh, internally, we were all very cooperative with each other at, at Cinemaware. You see stories like that over here in the UK as well in the early eighties of like you know seventeen year old kids that would go out and buy like three sports cars and <laughs> they were bankrupt about a year later. Yes, they'd go poor because, well, you know, they're kids. And they also remember we all thought the industry was going to go crazy and uh, everyone was going to get rich. And so they would think that what they got then was just be the tip of the iceberg and it turned out to be the whole iceberg. So <laughs> so Rocket Ranger was a fantastic game. And, you know, for me, it had that really good sound, graphics and B-movie feel. Um, what was it like hearing the ideas of it and kind of just getting the concept out there? Was it really exciting? Forget who the guy it's based on. I mean, it's not. It was based on Rocketeer, the actual uh, character, of the comic book. That's who they farmed it to, but they couldn't get the license. So the, I'm sorry. Uh, is it Rocketeer? It was called Rocket Ranger, right? Rocketeer is the property owned by I think Disney at this point. So they farmed it to them, couldn't do it. Uh, so they came up with Rocket Ranger, which is a little you know iffy. Uh, I guess to me. It was more mechanical back then. I wasn't really into the game itself. I was more into the beauty of creating the game. So I wasn't that much into the movie connections with it. But, you know, when you get to play it later on, uh, I thought it was pretty, pretty cool. But it's weird. Your, Your face is so much in the mechanics of it, you don't really consider the beauty of the art that you're putting together, if that makes any sense. Well, looking at that game, I mean, it kind of reminds me a lot of like the 1950s kind of sci-fi serials. It had like all the stuff in there, like the you know, the damsel in distress and the courageous hero. And was that kind of a big part of it? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, you might notice that most of Cinemaware games are based on older movies, you know, that like in the 60s and stuff, not like the modern movies of today or of then. So, yeah, I, I believe it was totally a conscious effort to copy uh, stuff like Pulp Fiction type stuff, things like Rocket Ranger, which is sort of science fiction. They had it came from the desert, which was, you know, big monster, radioactive ants and things like that. Uh, Three Stooges was one of their uh, properties that they worked with. King of Chicago was based on um, things like uh, gangster movies. SDI, which isn't really based on movies, based on, uh, I forget what the letters SDI, is a defense system. It's security defense initiative or something like that. It's what uh, the Star Wars thing that America came up with back then in order to uh, stop nuclear weapons, which I guess today wouldn't be considered too popular. But yes, uh, in general, their concept, and it was kind of cool, is that we had a nostalgia-type feel to most of the movie feels to our games. Where did the idea of Lexicross come from? Uh, uh, When I left uh, Cinemaware, one of my friends that I formed with at the time was uh, Rob Landeros, and he was an artist there, and he went on to do things like The Seventh Guest. But uh, we used to get together and play tennis all the time, and one time after tennis, we went to a Denny's, and... uh, he came up with this. We drank a lot of coffee, came up, got very talkative. And he said, why don't we do an X-rated version of Wheel of Fortune? And I said, well, that'd be a good idea. I actually kind of like the idea, but let's, 
We have to worry about the fact that, you know, Wheel of Fortune is a copyrighted concept. It's owned by Merv Griffin, who's a billionaire. So let me think about this for a night and come up with some rules for it. So instead of just being Wheel of Fortune, I decided to throw Battleship into the concept. In other words, what if it was Wheel of Fortune, but you had to, first of all, uncover the board to see what the shape of the letters are, or the letters that you have to form are, and then let's add other game uh, show concepts to it, like password, like instead of it being a quote, which is always the case, or used to be always the case with Wheel of Fortune, they're actually clues, so it was blue, red, green, uh, the answer would then be colors, so it was a bunch of that. So now that we had all of this difference, from Wheel of Fortune, we came up with the idea of, well, you know, why should this even be X-rated? This is a game in and of itself. Uh, at that point, uh, we wanted to have still some of the elements of Wheel of Fortune, so we wanted to have, a, 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 we created Robana, which is, of course, a concept of Vanna White, if you will. And because we now had a board that she had to go to all sorts of a big board, she had to be small because she couldn't cover the board. And if she couldn't cover the board and had to be small, how would she get around? And so if she had to get around... Maybe she's a robot, and maybe she can actually, you know, levitate around. And so this put the game in the future. And so what I'm saying is, Lexacross kind of designed itself and its and and the and the environment that we had to put it in because we now made it a a sci-fi thing with robots that you play against. And uh, and then when we released it, it got all sorts of great reviews. And uh, I, I that's again. I guess I have a few such games that I really thought were my favorites, but that was, I think, the one, the crown jewel. And people today still want me to make it again because, for some reason, women just really love that game. I have no idea why, but I have tons of women that have come up to me and said, I don't play computer games, especially back then, but I play this one. Uh, but I've tried to get that game started again a few times, and every time the production has failed, but, you know, maybe one day in the future. So how did you approach um, a company to kind of release this game, Lexacross? Uh, well, the first company that I approached with, uh, who went belly up, and I do not remember the name of them, uh, they, when they saw the game, they just immediately wanted to fund it. Uh, all you had to, uh, back then, all you had to do was walk in and show it to like, whoever owned the company. There weren't like uh, big buildings or something. like Companies were like three or four people sometimes. And so they really liked it, but and they gave me $10,000 to put it together, which basically paid for most of the startup. At least it pays for a really good demo. The company went under, and so uh, what happens when a company goes under and you've got that kind of stuff, you don't have to pay them back. So this was money free and clear. I then took it to Interplay. And the way that worked is, like I said, back then it was really easy to, you know, show things. I just called up the company, the uh, secretary of, to Brian Fargo, who was the head of Interplay at the time, uh, just arranged for me to come meet him. And so I showed up with the game, showed him a demo of it. He was kind of lukewarm about it, but he kind of liked it, and he said he would call me back at some point. Uh, then I went off and played tennis with Rob, like I said, and get back home probably about two or three o'clock in the morning because we'd hang out afterwards and talk and stuff like that. Like I said, we went to Denny's and things. And there's all sorts of these messages on my answering machine. And it's basically, you know, Brian Fargo saying, I really want to publish your game. I really want to publish your game. Turns out he, he didn't even want to wait until Monday. He was afraid I would show it to somebody else. He, he showed it to his wife and he played it with his wife uh, who they're no longer married, but at the time. And, uh, 
she just absolutely loved the game from what I understand. And so that's why he really, really wanted to publish it. And so, uh, you know, from that point on, about three months of production, just adding bells and whistles. They also wanted a modem play. And we put it out. And the only reason I think there are two reasons that game didn't do as well as I think it should have is one, because they were given a game in full, I don't believe they put as much marketing value into it. In other words, why risk money that you haven't spent? So they didn't do as much marketing as they could. The other problem is is they put a on the cover, which is, sort of made sense, but they put on the cover what looked like a nude metallic female robot. And so this is supposed to be a family game, and that may not have appealed to many people. The other problem I have with it is Lexacross, the X, the way they put it on the, on the box, was kind of hidden. So if you take the word X out of Lexacross, you get lacrosse. And so many, many places I went into put it into the sports section because they thought it was a lacrosse game. Uh, and so that's sort of the story of how that went, the presenting it to companies. But from that point, of course, Interplay, I then, they liked my work on that so much, they had me work on Stonekeep, which uh, they wind and dime me. We went to the CG, uh, CGDCA, which I, uh, I'm sorry, the Computer Game Developers Conference, and there I was being uh, wind and dined by actually three companies. One was, uh, one was, uh, Disney that wanted me to do a game that I created myself, which was called, which is based on time travel. I was also being talked to by Rob Landeros with respect to the Seventh Guest, which was being developed at the time, and Stonekeep, which at that point was called Brian's Dungeon. Uh, they wanted that being done at Interplay, so they took me out. They literally took me out to have food and stuff like that. Then Brian hands me this little piece of paper with a deal on it, which was uh, these may not be the correct numbers, but something like. Uh, 10% royalties, uh, you know, 20% of marketing, of, of all merchandising, uh, even 20%, I think, or, or some percentage of the sequel. The deal was so good, I took it without even going to a lawyer, uh, which later on turned out to be sort of a problem. Not me not going to a lawyer, but it was such a good deal later on. Brian wanted to sort of back out on the deal, but that's way past what this question was about. <laughs> So you, you mentioned Stonekeep's development, and during the period that Stonekeep was being developed, we saw momentous changes in computing. So how hard was it to kind of keep up with the pace of change? That's an excellent question, because when I was first given the project of Stonekeep, I realized it was pretty much impossible to do. <clears throat> what they wanted, what Brian asked for me to do, is, which didn't exist at the time, was a full screen full animation RPG game. I mean, most of them at that point had single, like, single uh, screens that they'd just go, like, from one screen to the next with no animation in between. It would be, like, a portion of the screen. Now, computers weren't fast enough back then. I think at that point we have the 286 going on. And I, but I still took the project. The reason being is I knew it would take a long period of time to do and during that time, I assumed that technology would catch up. In other words, shoot for where the moon's going to be, not for where it is. The only problem was that I didn't expect it to rise that fast. So the first year, I'm working with a 286. And then the next year, the 386 comes out, which is a complete change in how computing is done. So we need to do it two ways, 286 and 386. So now I have to do the program twice. Then the 486 comes out the next year. And so, which is more of an extension of the 386, but still, 
we have to account for that. And then the Pentium comes out <laughs> the year after that. So uh, that was part of the reason it took five years to do the program is because every single year the hardware kept getting so that it was better. We had to reprogram it for that and also to keep up with competition. And it was kind of a nightmare in that sense. But it all finally got together. Uh, kind of a cool aspect of that is when we did present it at uh, – at whatchamacallit, a consumer electronics show, CES, which is where a lot of game industry stuff uh, happened back then, it was the hit of the show, meaning we showed Stonekeep. They really loved it. And actually, that's why we kept going, because when I first was given the project, it was supposed to be $50,000 budget and nine months and maybe a few people. By the time the program had been done, it took five years, had a $5 million budget, and had 200 people on the project. So I was the start, and that's where it sort of ended up. So I would, I'm, could be considered the person to have probably the longest period of time on it and the most to do with it in terms of the beginning. Uh, but uh, by the time it got to the end, I got so burned out. I left a year before it was over with because as I, was, as I continued to be there, they kept doing feature creep. In other words, let's add this feature, let's add that feature, and it just got crazy. So at one point I said, look, just let's finish the design, give me all the, all the, uh, the what do I call it, the milestones that I'm supposed to do, and when I'm done with those milestones, I'm done. I did those milestones. And then I left, and that forced them into a position where they had to finalize the project without me. And that's why we have a final product today, because later on, they went on and did Stonekeep 2. And they did the same thing, five-year project, but it never came out because they just feature-creeped it to death. Uh, but yes, the technology drove that project so much because it kept adding features to it. We kept adding more graphics, more uh, capabilities to it, but it was also a nightmare because from a programming point of view, I had to program everything four times, <laughs> which well, is why we eventually had a team for that. Well, originally it was meant to be a floppy disk-based game, wasn't it? Yes, eventually. Oh, worse than that, it was uh, the, initial, <laughs> the initial design for the project had these constraints. It had to fit in 640K on, you know, entirely, uh, and it couldn't require a mouse or a hard drive. <laughs> so, yes, initially, it, and yes, running on, entirely on floppies, uh, of, although eventually it did get to the point where we could accept, of course, a hard drive. We could accept uh, a mouse, and we even eventually published it on CD-ROM. Uh, however, at one point... I, uh, when they wanted to cut my deal, I just mentioned inst the cost of, of uh, floppies as far like it was going to have to go on like seven floppies at one point. And I said, look, one CD-ROM, and that's a lot cheaper. And I figured that was good compensation for them, you know, not cutting my deal in half, which is what they wanted to do when they realized they gave me too good of a deal after two years. And indeed, they went to CD-ROM, and then everything was good. But yes, yes, God. I think uh, hardware had so much to do with Stonekeep, it's not even funny, especially from my point of view. Well, obviously, with that adaptation to uh, CD-ROMs and full motion video was kind of coming in then as well. I mean, did you kind of, obviously, Seventh Guest was like the big game that kind of got people into CD-ROMs around then. Were any of the Seventh Guest people kind of helping out with the project, or did you see much of that development happening at the same time? Uh, they were, of course, totally separate, but I, of course, since they were good friends of mine, like Rob and... Uh, stuff like, and Graham Devine, who's also very big, the two of them 
you know, created the project pretty much. No, we didn't share uh, uh, any kind of uh, technological tricks or anything, but it was a totally different thing because they were doing stuff entirely for a brand new emerging stuff, which was DVD and where we were, I think it was DVD at the time, not CD-ROM. Uh, boy, there's so many technologies back there. But, uh, but in talking to them, they had totally different problems. For one thing, uh, computers' slowness back then really hurt uh, the animation coming off of those discs. Uh, my, uh, keep in mind, though, my entire connection with them, besides being friends with them, is when I went in to interview with them, uh, <laughs> this is sort of a funny story. They hired me for one day to come up with ideas, or not to come up with ideas, but to you know pick my brain. So we had this brainstorming session. And I remember that the one thing that was true about every idea I came up with is everything I came up with was exactly what they did not do. <laughs> I think what they were doing is picking my brain to see what the mindset of the day was and then try to see how could they be different from that. So I would say that you would like have to you know, move the mouse over an item and then uh, you have to discover it, meaning you have to move around and have to locate it. And they had it, which is actually the way things are done today, that is, as long as the mouse goes over the item, the, the, mice, the mouse uh, icon changes and then you know it's there. I wanted them to click everywhere. I wanted people to really search everything. And in hindsight, I think they went the right direction. Well, Peter, I mean, in terms of like, you know, your kind of history in video games, it kind of reads like a who's who of like, you know, the big games and legendary companies from that era. It's like from the golden age of gaming, you could almost say. I mean, are there any plans to maybe ever like kind of revisit some of these classic games or could we see like, you know, Lexicross Mobile or HD or something like that at one point? I would love to do Lexicross again. And I have actually, in a number of cases, a number of times, started the project. We even had a Kickstarter for it at one point a few years back. But it really has to be correct. There was one um, company that wanted me to do uh, Stonekeep for them. But it was really funny. I did a Stonekeep demo, which had some new rules to it, because every time you do something like this, you can think of a way of making it a little bit better. And they liked everything about Lexacross, except for they wanted to take the battleship aspect of it, out of it. And like I said, what Lexacross is is basically battleship with, uh, with whatchamacallit, uh, Wheel of Fortune. But if you take the battleship out of it, all you end up with is Wheel of Fortune. And I didn't want to do a Wheel of Fortune one. So, again, if you will, because that's just a clone. So I'm waiting for the right setup for people to actually follow through with the money. <laughs> that kind of stuff. By the way, everybody would love for me to do it and then give them a final product. The problem is, you know, back then that was possible because budgets were very small. Today, to be competitive in the market, you need to have millions of dollars, basically. And I mean, trying to put something on an iPhone, you're in, competitors, you know, you're in competition with 5 billion other products, so everything has to do with marketing. So again, you need the money for the marketing there, if not for the actual creation of the project. I guess what I'm saying is, since things have changed, uh, my lone wolf status makes it very tough for me to do stuff in the future. But people keep coming to me with wanting to do Lexacross, so one day, hopefully, that will happen. But, you know, 
don't hold your breath. Because <laughs> I've been trying to do it for decades now. Well, after this show, you'll probably get more requests now. That would be great. That would be great. That would be wonderful. <laughs> well, it's been wonderful reminiscing with you. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your memories. And uh, if there is anything like that in the pipeline at some point, please do let us know. And obviously, we'll be well behind that. I absolutely will. And this has been a great pleasure. Thank you very much.